Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is engineer Eric Serafin, but you may know him better as Mixer Man. But first, YouTube commissioned a study in Europe from RBB Economics, and it was pretty interesting the results that they came up with. They found if YouTube suddenly had no music on it, so there would be no music videos whatsoever, and this could be an official music video, or it could mean a lyric video, or anything like that. If there were no music, 85% of the people that listen to music on YouTube would probably go to TV or radio or internet radio, and actually 29% of them would go back to piracy. Only 15% would go to subscriptions. Now, this is kind of suspect. First of all, it's only in Europe, but do you really think the 15% would go back to piracy? Especially with all the free tiers out there for all the streaming services. So this study you have to take with a grain of salt, I think, and of course, that's exactly what the major labels did, and they came back and basically said, you know what, we think you're absolutely wrong on this whole thing, and this is just a way of trying to justify the rate that you're paying to the music business. Now, the rates are pretty bad. It's 55% goes to the copyright owner and 45% goes to YouTube. Why is that bad? Well, because every other streaming service is 70% plus. So in some cases, it's as high as 80, 82% that is actually going back to the copyright owner, which means it's going to the record label, it's going to the artists, it's going to songwriters. But YouTube is taking a great chunk of that. So if you actually look and see the money that's coming in, there's a lot of advertising revenue coming in to YouTube, but not that much, relatively speaking, is going out to the music business. So this continues to be a problem. And no matter what kind of studies that YouTube can trot out, it can't justify, in fact, what's happening. Now, the only consolation here is that YouTube is starting to lose traction to Spotify and Apple Music and just about everybody else as people begin to find out that it's so much easier to have millions of songs at your fingertips and it's easier to find them on, again, any of those subscription services than it is to actually go looking around searching around on YouTube because half the time you come up with something that isn't the original version that you really want. So we'll see how this shakes out. I don't think that YouTube will be paying more anytime soon, but we can only hope that we won't be seeing more studies like this. If you have any questions or comments, please send them to questions at bobbyoinnercircle.com. If you want to learn more about the basics of mixing, sign up for my four-week Music Mixing Primer webinar course. Go to mixingprimer.com to learn more. Also, check out my new Hitmakers Club for access to a powerful online group, all of my courses, monthly workshops and Q&A webinars, core basic training, and much, much more. Go to hitmakersclub.com to find out all about it. Now, the next thing I want to talk about is how music affects brain chemistry. I'm really fascinated by all the studies that I read on this, and there's a lot of them. And everyone seems to correlate with the previous one, which just goes to show, in fact, there's a lot going on in our brain when we hear music. Now, there's a book called Why We Love Music that takes a particular study and it delves into it to a great extent, which is pretty cool because we find out a lot of things. For instance, loud music increases your adrenaline levels. That's why teenage boys like metal, hard rock so much. It's all of that additional adrenaline that kids especially like. But you could use it to your advantage if you're going on a long drive at night and you think you might be falling asleep. Well, in fact, some loud music can kick up that adrenaline level and keep you awake. Now, on the other hand, if you have trouble falling asleep, relaxing music about a half hour before you intend to go to sleep really does the trick. And it releases something called noradrenaline, which is a hormone that, of course, helps us sleep. Now, the study goes one step further, and it looks at advertising, which is very cool. So what they did is they looked at a wine store. On the left side, they had French wines. On the right side, they had the equivalent German wines. Equivalent meaning they're about the same prices at the same levels that you're looking at. So what they did is they started to play music. Actually, before they played music, they wanted to see what the sales levels were. And the French wines slightly outsold the German wines. When they began to play German music, 
German wine sold two times faster. And when they began to play French music, the French wine sold five times faster. So the next time you're in a store, just take notice to the music because it's influencing you in ways that you're probably not aware of, but you really should be. I guess today's engineer, Eric Serafin, who's had some great success with artists like The Far Side, Tone Loke, Ben Harper, Lifehouse, Bare Naked Ladies, Amy Grant, and Foreigner. He's a great engineer, but you might know him better from his writing under the name of Mixer Man. His hilarious Daily Adventures of Mixer Man book is a must-read for anybody in the business. And his Zen in the Art of Mixing, Zen in the Art of Producing, and Zen in the Art of Recording books also are something that everybody should check out. I spoke with Eric via Skype from a studio in Asheville, North Carolina. Let's go back to the beginning. How did you get into this business? How did you become an engineer? Wow. Well, we're going way back now. Um, I guess... uh it all started when I was 17 and in band and someone from Berkeley College of Music came into our band class and said, who here thinks they want to do music for a living? And I really had never given it much thought. And I was sitting there with my trumpet thinking, yeah, that would be pretty cool. Do music for a living. So I went and listened to the guys rap. Uh, I actually wanted to go to Berkeley College of Music right away. My mom was against it. And, uh, I, I accepted her counsel and decided to go to Rutgers U for, for a year first. And I studied with Kenny Barron, who's amazing bebop jazz, straight ahead jazz piano player. I'm sure you're aware. Yeah. And, um, and the, the beauty of that, and I studied with Prof Fielder too, who was the trumpet player, uh, the, the trumpet uh, guy who taught Wynton Marsalis. He was the first real crossover jazz classical guy he played in the chicago symphony in the 40s or 50s and and um so I, I learned quite a bit and one of the things i learned was i wasn't going to be a jazz piano player so i i remember struggling with that and i called my mom crying i don't want to be here i want to go to berkeley and finally she capitulated and i went to berkeley and i studied there for a couple years and changed my major because there were a bunch of things that i wanted to learn about I changed my major four times and I was a voice major for a period, which was pretty funny because I never actually thought I was going to be a singer. I just wanted to get, you know, some instruction. And, uh, I remember doing my final and just watching just the absolute horror of the, of the staff listening to me sing. <laughs> and, and I'm like, I just wanted to say, listen, I'm not really going to be a singer. Don't worry. It's okay. I'm doing the best I can here. <laughs> so I switched my major after that to songwriting. And songwriting was probably the, the, the most uh, uh, useful things that I learned at Berkeley. And I was writing, I was a songwriter and writing a lot at that time in my life. And, um, you know, I, I can't say that they made me a better songwriter, these classes, but they did define a lot of things for me. And they, uh, they made me recognize what goes into a great song. Um, and uh, there's certain things that master craftsmen do uh, with their songs um, that push the listener forward through it, that uh, accentuate the payoff in the chorus. Um, and these techniques that I learned, uh, whether it's with rhyming structure or melodic structure or rhythmic structure, these uh, were all very useful as a producer because if there was a problem on the song level, I was able to evaluate it and figure out what we could do to enhance all of those things. And so uh, after a couple years of, of doing that at Berkeley, meanwhile at Berkeley, I, I got a gig at, at this studio, Dimension Sound Studios in Jamaica Plain. Oh, yeah. I, I know it. Are you familiar with it? Yeah. So... Uh, this is where George Thorogood had been doing his recordings in the 70s, and it was a dead room, and now we're currently, as I'm talking about this, in the mid-80s, and 87, actually, and so dead rooms were out of vogue, and digital technology was coming in vogue, and this was an analog room, and so as a result, it wasn't very busy, and I was actually living in an apartment above the studio, had the keys to the studio, had full access to it, uh, and the owner... Who, uh, who I'd become friends with, um, uh, 
basically gave me carte blanche to learn and practice and, and did not put any pressure on me to earn money. And because it was kind of a hobby of his that got out of hand anyway, he worked for Raytheon. He was a rocket scientist, literally. And um, uh, so I just practiced and practiced. And I brought brands in from Berkeley. And some I charged a little bit of money. You know, and some others I didn't, whatever. It wasn't about that so much. And um, I spent a good four years just practicing before I decided, you know what? I feel like, I feel like, what I'm doing is uh, on par with the CDs I'm listening to as far as quality is concerned. And that was a long road to get there. Yeah. And you know, maybe it was, maybe it wasn't, doesn't matter, but I felt that way. And so once I was there, I decided um, that Boston was probably not the best place to be for what I wanted to do, really. And Dave was getting ready to shut down the place anyway, really. And so I decided maybe I should go to Los Angeles, and that's what I did. And in Los Angeles, my first six months, I wasn't working. That was pretty interesting. Then, then I got a gig at Capitol Studios doing setup for their big sessions, their string sessions. And that was probably the, that was a, a, a great learning experience, because I know how, how those big sessions are set up, because I set up so many of them. Yeah. And worked different guys in the film industry that maybe did things slightly differently. So I got to see all sorts of things that I would not have necessarily learned if I had come here and, and, and not gone to Capitol. And, uh, then I ended up at, uh, you know, Hollywood sound. And I, uh, one thing led to another, I ended up engineering, uh, and re recording, I should say the, the far sides first album, which was a gold album, which turned gold. And, and that pretty much launched my career very, very rapidly once I got to LA, but I really don't think it would have that my, my, my curve would have been like that. Uh, had I not spent all that time really practicing and cutting my chops and, and learning, uh, on my own, I might've learned all this stuff faster in LA, but it would have been, um, it would have been a different, it would have been a different, uh, trajectory for sure. So you didn't have a mentor then. Not really. I mean, Dimension Sound Studio had a chief engineer, Tom Foley. He's not with us anymore. And he, uh, you know, he basically, he was like that beginning piano teacher where he can take you to a certain point and then you got to go there. And he, he got me to the point that I needed to get, you know, because this was a fairly convoluted system where the way the patch bay worked, different things were normal to the, like the two track was normal to 17 and 18. So, like, you know, when you know nothing about recording, and most people who hear that have no idea what I mean when I say normal. In other words, if you pull the patch point on 17 and 18, you're recording to the two to the to the 24 track machine. If you plug in the patches, then you're recording to the two track machine. So, you know, and yeah. and the electronics were were made by Dave Hill, who was the owner, and you had to go to Repro and Ready. You had to flip two switches at once. So punching in was like this crazy convoluted like thing that you had to do. So uh, when I got out of that and into like the real world, uh, it was quite an eye opener and things became a lot easier actually. But yeah, I did have someone that got me to, you know, the stages that I needed to get to, to be able to actually operate and learn. But when it came to, you know, what I was hearing, uh, I'm not sure that, I'm pretty sure that everybody's got to learn that on their own time. You're lucky that you went to Capitol because as far as I'm concerned, the big thing that people miss is a reference point of what sounds good and what doesn't. And when you're in a big studio and you hear a playback of something that's great, that sticks with you forever. And that's your yeah. reference point. But if you're never in that position, it's hard to get to it because you just, I mean, you listen to CDs and everything, but it's not quite the same as when you're there. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And what's really crazy is, like, if you try and do reference material today, like, I mean, I still reference stuff just to see what's going on. And, you know, I'm always keeping up with what's hot and what's big. But if you start to listen to the way records sound, it's all over the map. Yeah. There is like it, 
there was a lot more uh, continuity when I first started out because of the, um, you know, records could only take so much low end. You had constraints, uh, physical constraints that you had to operate within. And we had standards as well with the, with, with the Audio Engineering Society and whatever, and people actually adhered to these standards. And But now, there's no sense. People, you know, it took people a while, but they figured out, I don't have any constraints on my low end. Why am I mixing my low end so light? And, uh, I mean, I figured that out very early in the 90s. I'm not going to be constrained by vinyl. What, what do I need to be constrained by vinyl for? And, um, you know, nowadays, like the low end is just, I love low end. I mean, I was mixing with a ton of low end in the early, in the, in the mid 90s. It boggles my mind, the low end people mix with now. Yeah. And, um, and there's just no reference that you can listen to that, that you can listen to three references and, and be completely confused as to where you're at or where you should go. And really at this point, you should just ignore it all and, and make your production and your, your mix and your recording sound and do the things that make it, uh, the best it can be and not really concern yourself with how everything else sounds beyond just having an idea of what that is. Yeah, yeah. Well, nobody else does, so why should you? Yeah, I get exactly. it. Exactly. I get it. You're in the East Coast now, right? Yeah, I moved from Los Angeles uh, at the end of 2015 to come to Asheville, North Carolina, which is an amazing place. Yeah. Um, and I moved here because I had actually produced four, uh, three records, three albums, full albums, at the studio Echo Mountain, and it's a world-class facility, one of the best rooms I've ever worked at. Uh, and they've got two rooms, actually. One's got a Neve 8068, one has a, in an old church, and one has an API. Uh, different size rooms, so I have all that I need as far as that's concerned. And I decided, you know, I don't get a ton of my work from Los Angeles anyway, so why am I in Los Angeles at this point? My son was grown up, he was out of high school. So I really loved the place. And there's so many musicians here per capita. It's mind-boggling. Yeah, I've heard um, it's a great scene. It's, it's an amazing scene. It's tough because now the city, and part of the reason that I moved here is because the city, specifically the Consumers Visitors Bureau here, is investing in trying to turn Asheville into a music town, like the next big music town. Okay, so, and I've had conversations with, with leadership at the CVB, and, um, you know, there's a thing going on here, it's the same thing that's going on, this is a microcosm of the whole music business. The musicians are sitting here like, but you're investing all this money advertising Asheville as a music town, but we're not ever going to see any of the money. <laughs> at the video awards... Someone was up there, one of the people was up there talking about how Asheville generates millions of dollars in revenue. Music generates millions of dollars in revenue for Asheville. And someone shouts out, show me the money. And so there's a real disconnect between the people who want to exploit music. And exploit is a legal term that we use in the music business. It's, there's nothing wrong with exploitation. But there is a problem with exploitation if it's not getting to the musician. Yeah. And that's what we're dealing with here. And I'm here in a very unique position as someone who's coming in from the outside of L.A. Because uh, with, with, you know, gold and platinum albums and, and, and a track record. Because, because I have a, a, a perspective that, uh, that others here don't. And I think that, um, so I view my role as one of trying to to change all of that. I, I, I think that I may be one of the few that's in a position to do that. There's others that are trying, but really when it comes down to it, it's going to have to, it's going to require an uprising really. And mm. our entire business is going to require an uprising of musicians and artists who say enough is enough. We're being, we're being exploited and we are getting nothing out of it. And, we need sustenance. We need a middle class in this business. And we need a middle class in this business in Asheville. And we need a middle class in this business all around the country and all around the world. And 
it's not good enough and it's not going to work the way it is now because all it's doing is, is making it more difficult for the cream to rise to the top. Yeah, you know, I agree with you, but in the recorded side of the music business, it's always been the same. It's always been as probably equally as difficult to make it and make money. I don't see a, any difference there, you know, over the long span of time. But Correct. I'll but tell here's you, the difference. Well, okay, go ahead. Yeah, here's where Sorry. I'm going with okay. that, though. When I was growing up, I was playing in a band that was playing in clubs four nights a week. I'm talking when I was 16 years old already. I was making a ton of money. And up until all the way through college, basically, just playing in clubs, I was making a lot of money, upper middle class money. And there was a lot of people that were doing it, mostly because there was a lot of clubs to play at. That whole scene across the world really has been decimated. And that's where a lot of the middle class was. It was also the farm team because you got good playing in front of an audience if you're doing it four, five, six nights a week. And when that goes away, then all of a sudden, you know, a lot of that creativity and a lot of that ability, the level of musicianship went down as a result. But I'll tell you why it happened. I I definitely saw it. It was the drinking and driving laws. And that's what basically killed the whole thing. It's a good law. There's no question about it. But there was definitely a pushback on the other side that really hurt the business, I think. Absolutely. Well, I'd say two things. One, the internet was supposed to change it all. And, uh, and the internet should change it all as far as creating a middle class for uh, the music business. The problem is that we have a delinquent Congress who's unwilling to uh, actually set statutory rates for streaming that are fair, to even have a fucking debate on the, on the matter. It has not happened, really. And uh, I, I understand that streaming sites have a reasonable argument that they should not pay what radio stations pay because they're not hitting as many people on a single stream as a radio station is on a single spin. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be debating it, and that doesn't mean that uh, we shouldn't be... Uh, 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 that artists shouldn't, A, be paid by radio stations and not just songwriters at this point, yeah. and B, that streaming sites shouldn't be paying both as well. A reasonable amount such that someone could actually sustain a living if they reach a certain reasonable amount of success on their spins yeah. and their streams. So the internet was supposed to change all that. The only people that are making money on it is big tech now. So we're getting screwed well, by Google, basically. The labels are, are making money. The, you know, they were up a the billion dollars. Are in bed with, yeah, but the labels yeah. saw what was happening, and they said, okay, you can't exist. You're big tech. You don't exist without our catalog. You need our catalog. So they were in the driver's seat, but that's not going down to any of their artists because none of that's in any of the contracts from legacy contracts. The streaming didn't exist. And so they're collecting all these advances from streaming sites and they're actually reinvesting in the streaming sites and becoming part to to the point where they probably will be undiscernible at some point. Um, I understand why labels are doing that. That's the only way they were going to survive. Despite, despite most of their maladies being their own fault. But here's the thing. Um, You also said that, you know, you make a very good point in that the farm team, people playing out, and that's been decimated. I agree with you 100% on that. Uh, And I think you're right. Drinking and driving probably was a big part of that. We have Uber now. We have Lyft. Um, Like, when I moved, I don't even have a car right now. Not because I, I, not because I can't afford a car, because I don't need a car. I can Uber wherever I need to go. Um, that's actually becoming a little bit more difficult now. I'm in a little more rural, so I'm actually considering picking up a car again. But you know, in urban centers, there's, I just I would not own a car in an urban center at this point. I don't think I'd need one. Yeah. So that's going to change. And the other thing is, I think that. One of the things I'm trying to do here in Asheville, and I was trying to do it for this season and couldn't put together the funding. Um, you know, I'm, I've, I'm, I've got two strikes against me. I, I'm an outsider. So that, that's to my advantage in some ways. It's my disadvantage in other ways. Um, I'm an outsider, and 
you know, I, I'm just getting, I'm still just getting to know all the people in this town that are in the music business. And I've been very aggressive. I mean, I've made hundreds and hundreds of connections and I'm still not quite there yet with, with what, where I need to be as far as the networks, networking is concerned. But what I'm trying to do is produce shows. So this is a big tourist town. And the way I figure it is, if people are coming here and they want entertainment, then we need to give them entertainment. And the CVB views it like, oh, well, we'll just tell them there's great music here. The problem is there's 90 shows a night all over town. And it, like, it's difficult for me to find out what show I want to go to. Mm. How is a tourist supposed to figure it out? So, and a lot of them are shit. You know, I mean, that's just the way it is. Some people, many people are brand new. They're just starting out. They're learning. They're, they're, they're making their bones. They're, you know, so the way I figure it is we need to put together shows that are designed specifically for tourists. So the tourists come here, we, we can bus them to the shows. We can do everything we need to do to make these shows, to sell tickets and to make these shows successful Get them all over the city where you got bands or acts that are playing every week without fail, ticketed shows, get the tourists to those shows, and all of a sudden we can create a middle class for the music business in Asheville. Now, that's not going to work for everywhere, obviously, more rural places. I don't know. You still got to be in population centers if you want to make it in music, as far as I'm concerned. So, but the way, and rather than sending our, our best bands out on tour and trying to collect bands that way i figure let's make our best bands uh um icons and have people coming to see them here yeah so that's my plan that's my big plan for that's, Asheville. anyway it's a good idea it is definitely people can't go if they don't know <laughs> simple as that exactly yeah exactly okay we can talk about this and i can see this is worth a, another podcast here one day we can just get off talking about the business it'd be fun but I want to get a little bit more on your background. When did Mixer Man come about? So I was recording uh, Ben Harper's Burn to Shine in 1999, the very beginning of that year. And I remember my assistant, Dan, uh, was like telling me about Use That. I'm like, Use That? What's Use That? And... I was internet savvy, but I wasn't internet savvy back to, you know, to the eighties. So I wasn't really familiar with Usenet. And he's telling me about this record audio pro on Usenet where people talk about audio and recording. I'm like, what people go on the internet and talk about recording. So I started going on there. I went on there once under my real name and I got hammered, just hammered. I mean, it was ruthless. And I'm like, fuck this. I am not going to come on here and get into like real pissing matches with people under my real name right now uh, at this stage of the game. And I was a lot younger then. So I felt like it was such a, it was such the wild west. It was so rough and tumble. I'm like, you know what, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to go in anonymously and I'm going to make people realize that I know what the fuck I'm talking about based on what I'm talking about, period. I'm not going to rely on my discography. I'm not going to rely on my anything other than my words. And so I went on his mixer, man, and I was ruthless and I attacked people and uh, I told people they were stupid and I did all the things that, you know, we can't stand Donald Trump for. And it worked. It got me noticed. And people started to realize, wait a second, this guy really is an LA engineer. Who is he? Um, and he obviously knows, like I would talk about the, 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 the echo chambers underneath the parking lot of Capitol records. And then people started to go, Oh, wait a second. He knows what he knows. He's, he's there. He really is there. So after a, about a year and a half of that Fletcher came to me and said uh, that there was this company that was starting an internet forum that uh, wanted moderators. And he thought that I'd be a good moderator, that I could help grow the site. And they gave me a stipend. And that was ProSoundWeb. And for a year, 
pretty much just flawed. It was, you know, there were probably 200, I'd grown it from zero to 200. And I'm like, you know, this, this isn't any fun. And people were resisting switching from Usenet to go over to the internet because the internet had ads and the internet had moderation and the internet had censorship and Usenet had none of them. And so nobody was, we were going to be on Usenet forever. So there was a lot of resistance to come over. And I thought to myself, you know what, I got to come up with something that, you know, brings people over here. And so I had this idea. What if I wrote a book? What if I, not a book, I actually wasn't even thinking about it in those terms. What if I wrote a daily post about me as an anonymous engineer under the pseudonym of Mixer Man working with a bidding war band in Los Angeles with an infamous producer, none of who are named, and an unnamed studio, and I just give daily accounts of what's going on of what turns out very quickly to be the session from hell. And it was very easy to write because I was 15 years into my career at this point and had seen quite a bit of, of nonsense in that time and, um, and just out and out craziness. And, and so I started to write this story and within a week, like it used to be you'd have five views in a day and five views in a day on a post. Now all of a sudden I was refreshing. I was getting five views. Every time I hit refresh, refresh, five views, refresh, five views. I'm like, what's going on here? So this is before anyone really had seen viral reactions. I mean, maybe I was aware of them, but I hadn't like witnessed it. And I certainly hadn't experienced it. Four weeks into this story, and this is the Daily Adventures of Mixer Man I'm talking about, which was which ultimately was my first book. Four weeks into this story, someone posted the entire four, fourth week onto Usenet, which I wasn't too happy about at first, but then it just blew up off the hook. I mean, I went to 25,000 people coming a day. Uh, that ultimately got up to 150,000 people coming a day to read this pretty long story about a recording session in Los Angeles. Every day, the first thing that I'd do is I'd go online and I'd go to Gear Sluts, which had just kind of opened up, and, and Harmony Central, and Massenburg had his thing over at uh, Music Player. And I'd just read all these comments about people just criticizing me for, for divulging the the events of a, of a session like this and people trying to figure out who the hell Willie show was, who this band was criticizing me for, for, for being so harsh on the musicians and calling them idiots and whatever else I called them. And, uh, you know, it was all figment of my imagination. So it was all rather humorous to me as I'm reading all this, cause it was a satire, but people were hooked in. And so with any good satire, you try and shake people off. But the more I tried to shake people off, the more they grasped tighter and said, no, there's no way we believe this. And I just could not shake everybody off. And by the end, there, for years, people still, I mean, still today, people are convinced that that story was absolutely true and they want to know who the band was. I'm like, oh, there's, there's no band. There's no, like, well, who are the people? You know, the people are like complex composites of various people that I've met. There, in many cases, I'm, I'm exploiting um, uh, stereotypes of people who fit certain roles in this business. So, you know, I wasn't being particularly inventive. I was just being observant. And so that, that was pretty much my start on the Internet. Well, I have to say, I was one of your readers, and I would go on Usenet every day, recaudio.pro. And I would, yeah. I couldn't wait for a new version for the the update. So I I oh, was cool. I was there with you. I got to say, I believed it too. I, I have to say, I believed it. It was all real, which is brilliant. You're able to do that in, in fiction. You're able to make it so real that people think it's real. So congrats well, I couldn't on do that. that about running for Congress. You know what I mean? I yeah. mean, I was writing about something that I really knew well yeah. and intimately. I was really relaying stories across the 15 years and just cramming them into one session. 
Okay, so then I want to know about your latest book. That's Mixer Man and the Billionaire Parent. Yeah, hashtag Mixer Man and the Billionaire Parent. Oh, yeah, okay, right. I haven't read that, so what's that about? Well, that's probably my sequel to The Daily Adventures of Mixer Man. We fast forward 15 years to the current state of the music business, uh, whereas The Daily Adventures of Mixer Man was a story of waste and... and uh, 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 just uh, ridiculous amounts of spending to create music. And uh, today is the opposite. It's about doing the best you can with what you've got, making it work, doing anything you can to make money, creating multiple sources of, of avenues of income, recording, mixing, producing, managing. I mean, being a musician, playing out, everything. Everybody's got to do multiple things. I mean, I, I still produce and record, but I also write books. Yeah. So, you know, we, that's just the state of the business. And so my, my goal with that book was just to kind of make people aware of just where things are at, which is that there's actually more money in teaching music recording than there is in recording today. And, that unless you're well-funded, uh, as an independent artist, getting a hit is not going to happen. Yeah. I mean, that's just the reality. Uh, and, okay, yes, it can happen. But at what point, how, how, how steep do the odds have to be before we accept it's not likely going to happen? And um, So I wanted to address that, and I wanted to address just how badly we're all getting ripped off right now, because creators, because we're not able to sustain a living or a decent living uh, doing one thing anymore. I mean, when I went to L.A., I was an engineer. That was it. And then for a while, I was a mixer. That was it. That was my job. That's what I did. Now I got to do all these things. I got to record, mix, produce, manage, and do it all at once. And there's, that's a very difficult prospect. In some ways, it's kind of cool, but I'd like to get paid for it, too. So, and not just me, everybody. And I, I'm one of the lucky ones. I still do okay. But there's a lot of people that really, really, really struggle. And it really comes down to we've, this argument that I make about big tech and how they've just taken everything from us as creators. And, you know, Google's in in got their lobbyists in, in Congress trying to, to dismantle and to weaken copyright in Facebook too because they don't need copyright protection. They, they can afford trademark and patents and other things that cost a lot of money to protect. The whole purpose of copyright was so that the every man, person with no money, could protect their intellectual property. And so they would love nothing more than to dismantle this completely. Fortunately, there seems to be not too big an appetite in Congress for that. Unfortunately, there's not a big appetite in, in changing the status quo at the moment either. Well, I've, that's not what I've heard, actually. I've talked to a few industry lobbyists who feel pretty strongly that it's actually going in the right direction, where copyright is going to be stronger under the Trump administration. So we'll see. It is going in the right direction because there was just a vote in, Cong in the House uh, 378 to 40 or 20 or whatever to, to make the register of copyright um, its own entity rather than being under the librarian of Congress right? who just pulled a, a, a move where she fired the current register of copyright Maria Palente uh, who was great and who deals with Congress directly and there was a lot of uh, talk about how, I don't want to get too, in, too far in the weeds, I apologize, but about how this, was, uh, this move was to bring in a shill from Google to weaken copyright. And Congress, Conyers and, and Goodlot of the Judiciary Committee have realized what's going on, and they passed it through the committee with only one vote against, and they passed it through the House. Now it's got to go to the Senate. But what's going to happen is copyright, register of copyright is going to be uh, selected, not not hired by the Librarian of Congress, but by the Librarian of Congress in consultation with the Speaker of the House 
the minority leader of the House and I think the, uh, the, the one of the leaders in the Senate. So now, and, and this is, the, the sign is that this is going to make the Register of Copyright its own entity and it's going to have a lot more power uh, to operate. So I think you're right. I think Congress does not have uh, an appetite for dismantling and weakening our IP, um, our intellectual property. But man, they, this is, I mean, this has needed to be addressed since 2006, yeah. you know? So we're, we're 11 years out from when it really kind of needed to be dealt with. And how many more years are we going to go? Uh, I understand Congress moves slow, but right now, uh, there just seems to be a lot more distractions. I'm just hopeful that, that through all the distractions that we actually can get some, some decent legislation that at least moves the ball forward for the creators who are really kind of getting ripped off right now. Anyway, to get back to the book, the basic premise is uh, a billionaire from India calls me and wants me to mentor his son to, to become the next big Bollywood producer. Of course, I know nothing about Bollywood, but I know how to produce. So I figure, okay. And after some negotiation, I would, I basically agree to take in this kid for a year. And uh, upon Kanish, the young billionaire's son, arriving to the United States, I realized we should go on a road trip. Uh, we go on a road trip and learn a lot about each other. And in the course of that road trip, I come up with a little ditty in the car. And my billionaire cohort decides that this is going to be the next big hit and that he's going to turn this into a big hit and all sorts of shenanigans ensue and i can't say much more without giving away the plot but it's a it's a wild adventure uh that i use as as a way to kind of mirror what's happening uh in our political system to against what's happening in our music system and it's the same thing. It's an income inequality issue here. And until we right the ship on our income inequality, uh, the middle class in real life and in the music business are going to continue their downward trends. Um, okay. Well, and that's the basic point of the book. That's, that's what I'm going to have to read soon. Before I let you go here, tell me about your radio show and your forum. How did those come about? And I know it, they've been great branding for you, as your books have. I know this as well. It's a big step when you say, well, I'm doing this, I'm going to do this as well, and oh, let's do this too. That's a lot to have on your plate. So how did you do it? Well, I'm, I'm not sure I, I'm doing a great job at it at the moment. I mean, my forum, the Womb Forums, I really, uh, I'm not, like forums have kind of died, you yeah. know? So... Uh, that was a viable, at one point it looked like a viable business. Part of the problem is, you know, I'm a producer first and foremost and running a forum really like I liked being part of a forum, but running a forum and running it as a business is a whole other thing. And I did not, once you do something, that's what you are. And yeah. I did not want to be a forum owner and have that be my life. And I'm glad that I didn't do that because I'd be hurting right now because the forums are dead because Facebook has basically killed them with groups. Yeah, sure. So I'm not doing a whole lot with my forum at the moment. It's kind of there. I don't even know what to do with it because people like it and they want to keep it. And it's not costing any money, really. You know, maybe a little bit of server money. But so I keep it up there. But, you know, and the radio show. The radio show is not happening at the moment. I've been considering starting a new podcast. You know, everything's changed. I moved out of L.A. Yeah. Slipperman, who was on the radio show with me, he moved to Tasmania. Wow. Um, uh, Saint's still in New York. Uh, William's still in William Whitman's still in New York. Uh, Aardvark is dealing with real life. So we really haven't been able to put together any radio shows recently. But I've got all sorts of new friends in Asheville, so I'm, I've been considering doing, you know, starting up a podcast again uh, with that. And, but you're right. The problem is that I only have so much time on my plate. 
And if I'm producing records, I really have no time yeah. because they're all consuming for me. Um, when I'm on a project, I, there's nothing else is getting done. And when nothing else is getting done, then those things are, are, are uh, not being attended to. Your businesses are not being attended to. So they can only grow so much. So I have made a concerted effort and a decision that I'm going to start to be uh, put a lot more, invest a lot more in the whole teaching side of things. Um, I've been doing some videos with this guy, Ryan Earnhardt. The ones that I watched are dynamite. Very good. Yeah, the uh, the crazy pipe delay. The newest one we're going to record. Well, I shouldn't say this because it may not work very well, but we're thinking about recording an entire drum kit with speakers. <laughs> and uh, I love it. Which which would make a which is going to make a dramatic picture, you know? I have yeah. speakers chained up and hanging over over a drum kit. I have no idea if that's going to work because you know most of the time I use speakers for a sub, not yeah. for actual recording, but. I figure if we put, you know, sometimes I'll put an NS10 in front of a guitar amp and I don't need a microphone because it's got the tweeter on there too and the crossover. So we're thinking about, you know, chaining up some NS10s over the, the drum kit and various speakers. And basically I want to kind of just, I just want to kind of remind people that this is a creative process, you know, and sometimes we get really bogged down in the technical side of things. And, you know, 10 years ago I did too, but now it's not like that anymore. People, engineers and, and, and studio guys are lucky to get 25 to 50 bucks an hour. And how are you going to be worried about 96K when you're bringing in that kind of revenue? And, you know, you, you're doubling your, and I actually did a post on Slate Audio Files today about this. I'm like, you're doubling your, 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 your disk space. You're doubling your, you're actually you're more than doubling because you've got to back it up too. You're doubling your upload time. Uh, when you go to when you're backing up on the cloud, you're 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 you need you need a computer that's relatively new that has the horsepower to operate that way. It's like from a practical perspective, really, no one is ever and the listener doesn't listen to 96k, nor could they hear, nor do they care. So why are we worried about 96k? There's many more. We got to start to prioritize what's important here. And I understand, you know, monitoring is important conversion, your monitors, your room, translation, that's all really critical stuff and worth investing money into. But beyond that, it's really, you know, it's about the song and the performance. And if you're doing anything more than engineering, that's the only thing you should be worried about. Yeah. yeah. Because uh, the engineering is supposed to be a dedicated job. Uh, and you're better off letting the engineering go to the wayside and concentrating on the music than the opposite. Yeah. No, I'm with so you. So if those are your two choices, then I say that, you know, so I just want to remind people this is a creative thing. You're better off in, uh, investing your, 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 uh, uh, your efforts into creating and, and having fun and making it a fun process and concentrating on the music rather than uh, I'm concentrating on the tools that we use to make the music. Good point. Good point. Last question. Has there been a piece of business advice that you've learned along the way, or maybe somebody imparted to you that kind of gave you an aha moment? Oh man, I'm sure there's a lot. Uh, is there one piece of business advice that you would give somebody else getting into the business? Yes, there is. My business advice would be to understand, A, positioning, what it is. And positioning is a business um, term. Most of us are familiar with it. Just to lay it out very simply, in cars, Volvo positions themselves as a safe car. And... Lexus positions themselves as a luxury car. Uh, BMW positions itself as a sporty luxury car. You see what I'm saying? So, mm. so that they don't compete. They do compete against each other, but they compete towards a niche. So positioning is a critical uh, part of, of any business. And you as a business operator need to understand what your position is and need to understand what your branding is 
and need to pay attention to that and make your decisions based on where you want to go. In other words, and I made this I've made this argument many times over the years. If you don't like editing drums, then don't edit drums. If you don't like music that's to grid, then don't start taking every band that wants to be put to grid and making them great to grid because that's what your life is going to be from now on. Yeah. So, you know, you have to be very cognizant and careful about a the gigs that you take and that's difficult when you need to take every gig that comes along yeah right but you still got to be cognizant of it and make sure that you're not putting yourself in a position that you don't want to be in that you're going to have to try and break out of later and that goes with genres i purposely positioned myself from the very beginning such that i would not be uh, known as a guy in any particular genre. I wanted to have a diverse, super diverse discography. I would have been way more successful in the short term had I made myself the guy in a particular genre. I also would be dead broke right now. Yeah. So, because things change. And if you put all your eggs in one basket, then you've got to completely reinvent yourself. And that's a very difficult prospect. And you have to reinvent yourself in this business as it is all the time. Yeah, yeah. So that would be my advice is, is really pay attention and understand that what you do is what you are. If you do things that you don't want to do, then you're risking becoming that person. That's, so keep that in mind. That's excellent advice, Eric. Very cool. To find out more about Eric and his work and his books, go to Mixerman.net. Mixerman, all one word, M-I-X-E-R-M-A-N.net. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at BobbyOInnerCircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to BobbyOsinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to BobbyOInnerCircle.com, or find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, or Google Play. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyownercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts to new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. <laughs>